Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, that's not fair. So, Shalon, who is amazing. If you, if you want to know why professors are here, I know when Desiree Leibengood said, uh, spoke earlier this semester, it's part of the Dean series, she said that uh, um, she loves the students. And, and Shalon's a good uh, example and illustration of why I enjoy being here and why many of us on faculty are here and come in every day. Um, at the College of Business and Technology, uh, we, uh, we, we talk about kind of three things. We want to grow in our students certain knowledge. We want you to have knowledge when you graduate from here. We want you to have skills. We want you to be able to do things that are amazing when you leave here. Uh, but we also want you to have virtues, character, and Shalon represents and exemplifies all of those three amazingly. And uh, as a corporate, as someone who's recorded corporate side, uh, she's going to be in demand. I keep telling her that. Um, organizations are going to want to hire her. They're going to be lined up. Um, but uh, but uh, you almost made me cry on the introduction. And, and it's not fair because my daughter actually gave me an encouragement before I went up. I'm like, anyway. Uh, it's not fair to try to make it's not fair to try to make the crusty economics professor uh, cry before the message. All right. Hey, my 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 family. Oh, I actually here here's here here here's here's a, our message. But my I have my, some of my family here today. Um, I, two of my kids uh, are at North Central. One's finishing up at the University of Minnesota this year. And uh, they're, they're on campus. It's a joy. My wife, Carrie, is here. Some of uh, my students know her as my CPA, since we're certified public accountant. I refer to her enough as my CPA that my students refer to her as your CPA. Uh, so my CPA is here on campus. And I would say that uh, we've been married for 26 years. And... Marriage, and uh, we're, we're, I'm probably more imperfect than she is, but people are imperfect and everything, but God, by his grace, um, I, I, I think we're as on fire relationally, imperfectly, but as on fire today as, as we ever have in, in our marriage. So you can hit 26, and I hope that hits 40 and 50 uh, on fire. Uh, and she has her own business, and I love the fact that she is she loves God and she's competent in her field. And so the things that we talk about at the College of Business and Technology uh, at North Central University, she exemplifies and, and I'm, I'm super proud of her. Um, let, let's jump in here. So the, the message, you can tell that I'm not part of the marketing uh, uh, faculty here at North Central in terms of even how I titled this. Economics, Innovation, and the Kingdom of God. I would try to under, unpack here kind of why the work that you do every day matters. Uh, we want to encourage you that what you do matters. Each of us play various roles um, every day. Some of those roles are compensated, some are uncompensated uh, and stuff. At, at the College of Business and Technology, we love compensated roles. I just unapologetically, uh, we love it when you make bank, when you leave North Central. We, we are in favor of that. But let me, let me, let me, let me say this. Um, the roles that you play are not less consequential because you're not paid for them. God works through every single role that you play, regardless of whether you're paid. Now, for me, kind of theological foundations here, Ephesians 2.10, I memorized this probably first time when I was eight. I memorized it in three or four translations, so I probably can get it correctly in none of them. Um, but if you're, in one, if you're in one of my classes, you're going to get this scripture at some point 
throughout a semester. Um, I'm praying this for you. I'm speaking this over you, that we are God's masterpieces. He is... um, he has uh, created us anew in Christ Jesus to do good works which he has prepared in advance for us to do. And some of those works are relational as a friend, a teammate, a parent, a husband. Uh, some, and today we're gonna focus a little bit more on vocational uh, t- t- types of roles and that the work you matter, sorry, the work that you do matters whether you're a teacher, a therapist, a journalist, a pastor, an engineer, an actuary, Uh, an accountant, a marketer, entrepreneur, or whether you're an employee, whether you're in a for-profit or a non-profit, whether it's in a church or faith-based institution, whether you work for a governmental entity, all of these roles, there's no place that you can work uh, in in God's creation where God cannot work and be honored through it. We've had the Dean series this semester and I've loved kind of hearing from our deans. As a student at another Christian university, I loved when our faculty, kind of members of the administration spoke in chapel, and I've loved hearing the deans. Dr. Alan Tennyson is amazing. Um, He said that we, speaking on behalf of the College of Church uh, Leadership, that they didn't want to call it the College of Ministry because they they believe that ministry happens in every major, in every college, and I I, I second that. Dean Larry Bach, uh, College of Fine Arts, uh, said that they're, uh, that you're, if you're part of the College of Fine Arts, they have a passion for developing graduates who impact the world for Christ. And actually when he said that, and, and, when he, and he said that, that that's true regardless of major. And I, as he was speaking that, I found myself saying, man, I love that word passion. And then the next thing that came out of his mind is that he said, man, the word I love best of that is passion. I, passion is a big part, and you'll, I think you'll see that come out in today's message. God doesn't need mediocrity. He wants skilled, creative people. Paul uh, Herkman yesterday, and again, I think it's unfair that I have to follow the day after Paul Herkman, and then I have to follow such great, uh, inspiring worship. You put an economist after all that inspiration, um, who knows what's going to happen. Uh, but Paul Herkman said, don't live a careful life. I think that theme you'll see kind of in mine. And while my message today will feel and look differently than Paul's yesterday, I think they're complementary. They're not contradictory. At, at times I was truthfully having a mini, mini uh, um, uh, session of, uh, of anxiety yesterday. I'm like, man, Paul's preaching a great message and mine's gonna feel like it's contradictory. I think it's complementary to it. So. I ate rice and beans yesterday for lunch and I encourage you to participate in Hope for Dinner and eat rice and beans for lunch today. In the Dean series, Professor Bill Tibbetts talked about myths, lies that the enemy has as we kind of think about our daily work. And he said that he struggled as a journalist early in his career to figure out why being a journalist managed to God. And so I'd like to at least take my little stab at figuring out how we explain that, why your work every day in every single role that you have matters. And as an economist, I'm gonna use economics in the field of economics to try to explain that. Fundamentally, I see the world as an economist. Occasionally my kids, because they're on campus here, have friends, colleagues ask them, does your, does your dad really think and speak in economic language like all the time? The answer is yes. It's just I am incapable of not. I have, and it rubs off. My kids will occasionally say things like, I'm thinking about buying something and the marginal cost of it is zero. And you get the idea that the, 
my kids get influenced by the economic thinking. If you were to look at my desk, there's drawings, charts, graphs, and things as I'm reading the newspaper and things. Um, I think about my world from an economic lens. But I'm also, I also have a master's degree in theological studies, and so I also th- see the world through a kingdom of God uh, lens as well. And I try to integrate both this economic view of the world and this theological kingdom of God view of the world. And I do that imperfectly. And sometimes they synth- I think they synthesize and integrate well, and sometimes they don't. And I live in tension, and, and, and God leads me through that. But when I think about the kingdom of God, I like this quote from a, um, a church creed. This inspires me. It says that God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his glory. And we could probably spend an entire hour just unpacking that there's a lot of rich theology embedded in that short quotation, which is why I like it. It is rich. But the, the part that fits today is this making all things new. All things means all things. In fact, I'll, I'll play preacher here even though I'm more of a teacher. Turn to the person next to you and say, all things means all things. And turn to the person on the other side and say, all things means all things. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll stop try, uh, pretending to be a preacher. All right. Um, no, hey, no. Fundamental to, fu- fundamental to biblical theology of the kingdom of heaven is that God's redemption is holistic. It's all-encompassing. Central to a theology of the kingdom of God is that God is redeeming people, but he's also redeeming everything else in creation. And he's making all things new. Revelation 21 says he's gonna wipe tears from your eyes. There's no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. These are gone forever. Romans 8 says that we look forward to a day when we don't experience these things and we have our freedom from decay and suffering and we don't experience these things perfectly in this life but we get a taste of them. The kingdom is already here and not yet. You get that in your theology class. But, but we get to participate in the kingdom here and now. And so uh, here's my first economics chart. Um, if you had stats, this is a scatter plot. Yes, I pulled a scatter plot into chapel. Um, I, here, here's the deal. I see the kingdom of heaven in this chart. As you move up into, well, here's what the scatter plot is. It's, it's countries around the world, the size of each of the dots on there that represent population. And so you see India and China are a little bit bigger than, say, you know, Costa Rica um, and, and stuff, and it's based on, on population. And it's, it's national income on average, so that the average well-being financially of, of the members of, of, of those countries, and then how they rate themselves in a Gallup survey about the, the quality of their life. And there's a strong trend. As income rises, people say my life is better. And I see the kingdom of God. As we move up and to the right, fewer parents send their kids to bed hungry at night. As we go up and to the right, fewer parents let their children die from, have their children die from preventable illnesses. Physical well-being and material well-being isn't the entirety of the kingdom of God, but it's at least part of it. Um, the Bible speaks of well-being, shalom, and, and, and at least, I've seen this graph, at least part of what it means to live the kingdom of God. Uh, Angus Deaton uh, won a Nobel Prize uh, in part for his uh, attempt to try to uncover what well-being looks like throughout, uh, the, throughout the world. And, and he said this, life is better now than at almost any time in human history. 
More people are richer and fewer people live in dire poverty. Lives are longer and parents no longer routinely watch a quarter of their children die. Yet, millions still experience the horrors of destitution and premature death. The world is hugely unequal. This message is gonna be primarily positive. I am an optimist by nature, and I think a lot of the data as I look at our world is, is overall positive, and, and maybe this will be a contrarian message. Um, I'm not denying that, there's, that there are problems of extreme poverty or that millions of children don't die of uh, uh, premature illness. In fact, here's a few headlines that I just snapped this last weekend. We see wildfires uh, this, this week, and this morning as I was driving in uh, the, on the radio, they said six more deaths uh, due to destruction in California. Uh, we've seen mass shootings in the recent weeks. We've seen political tensions and recounts and, and everything. I mean, p- pick your social ill, uh, the things that concern you in the world. Uh, th- these are true. But I'm going to make, I think, in this message a contrarian observation that uh, for people around the globe, things have generally been getting better uh, since about 1800. Over the last 200 years, we've seen improvements year over year, decade after decade. Um, in fact, Nicholas Kristof, who is a somewhat crusty uh, columnist for the New York Times, occasionally not, not always positive in, in his writing, uh, pretty much every year gives a, this year was better than last article uh, in, in commentary. And so he, here's kind of how he describes it. He says, you may think this year was the worst year ever, but you'd be wrong. In fact, this year was probably the very best in a long history of humanity. And he says, I wrote last year that it was the best year in history, and next year I'll probably say that that year is the best in human history because I expect good things for next year. Uh, and so uh, this message, you see kind of a reflection of, of, of that. I think God calls us to live in a sort of an op, what I call an optimistic pessimism in the sense that I'm optimistic because redemption is real and God is at work in this world. And I pes- I'm pessimistic because there's still the impact of sin. And I live in a tension between that optimistic pessimism, but the optimism on my side works out, wins out. And I think the data, as I look at data, kind of kind of displays it. So I'm going to go back to the Deaton scatter plot, and I circled something on here. I think it's important to have context uh, about your life and kind of the world that we lived in. Okay, over multiple millennia of human existence, nothing truly much happened to better people around the world um, in, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, improving kind of the well-being, financial health, and, and such. Um, up until the end of roughly the 18th. Uh, century, people basically lived lives that were subsistence level. Um, and w- the area that I circled on the chart is pretty much where 99% of the world lived. That was their experience, your experience, if you lived on Earth prior to 1980. There wasn't anything to the right. All of those countries, all of the, uh, everything that you see to the right of what I've circled didn't exist. 99% of people on earth kind of lived in that space, lived on the equivalent of maybe $600 a year. And there's maybe times and places where it was a little better than that. And there were kings and nobles and those who lived better than that, everything. But they were insignificant in, the, in terms of the, a picture of the entirety of, of the world. And the odds are, if you'd been born prior to, 19, prior to 1800, um, you would have lived in a family where your annual income was a modern equivalent of 400, 600, 800, maybe... Uh, if you're really rich, $1,000 a year. And then a couple hundred years ago, something changed. That growth happened throughout uh, the world. It happened in industrialized uh, nations first, 
And we saw growth and it grew at about 3% and it happened year over year, decade after decade, and other countries around the world have slowly been uh, uh, picking up and things are getting better year over year and we began to expect that things are gonna get better year over year. There's a whole lot of new wealth over the last 200 years that have been created in the United States and around the country or, and, and around the world. Um, but with this growth came a new phenomenon, which was wealth inequality. We had never truthfully in human history experienced the type of wealth inequality that we have today because nobody was wealthy. I mean, just, I mean, truth be told. Per capita incomes in the United States are roughly 70%, sorry, 70 times greater than what they are in the poorest parts of Africa. And so never has the world seen inequality on the scale. The good news is that we, that kind of the cause of it is a good thing. We've never seen wealth on the scale. And kind of economic observation here is that it's not an issue that the poor in our world are getting poorer. Since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, I don't think you can make a case that one people group in the world is substantially worse off than they were prior to the Industrial Revolution. Um, and again, the, 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 what we've experienced over the recent centuries is new. We haven't experienced it before, and so we're still, even as Christians, as public, in public policy positions and governments, trying to figure out what do we do with this. And, uh, and Desiree Leibengood, uh, Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, uh, asked in her, her talk earlier this semester, she said what will, that students and she are asking questions like, what will our world look like in 10 years? And she described this uncertainty and anxiety that we get. I don't know what the world looks like in 10 years, but given what I've seen in the world over the last 200, I am willing to make a strong bet that what we'll see in 10 years is better than what we experience today, and that's a good thing. In fact, uh, Dr. Leibengood uh, said that God's economy isn't a zero-sum game, and I love that, and I second that. Um, she said, you know, or she's using, I, I tend to use this idea of a pizza. It's not as though we are dividing up a pizza into pieces, and if I get a piece, you don't, and I'm, my piece takes away from yours. But economically, and in this graph, this chart that you see, you see expanding pizzas. We're, we, we have the capacity to reach and, and impact more and more people. And so uh, Dr. Leibengood said that in God's economy, there's a miracle that it's, there's always enough, that there's surplus. And we've actually seen that play out in our world over the last 200 years. And here's the interesting thing. I see, economi sorry, I see economists that are atheists. I see um, sociologists that are atheists. I see atheist psychologists from all kinds of academic disciplines looking at the data and saying, wow, things in our world are getting better. They see the impact of God in the world, but they deny that God's the force behind it. I think it would be uh, unfortunate if, as followers of Jesus, we would look at the data, look and see what God's doing and fail to even recognize that God's at work. Now, here, I'm gonna go quickly. We, we need to recognize God's hand. Here's just a, a, a picture, and I'm gonna go through these uh, fairly rapidly. O over the last uh, uh, couple hundred years, we've seen a decline in global poverty. The number of people around the globe living in extreme poverty um, has, goes down by about $200,000 every, uh, 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 every single day. More people have access to electricity and running water. And actually, it's, it's, I think it's interesting that my dad uh, grew up in Minnesota, and when he was in grade school, he grew up in a home in which they, in grade school, they did not have running water and they did not have electricity. 
my father in Minnesota within, uh, w within recent history did not have that. He went to a one-room schoolhouse that didn't have running water, didn't have electricity, and, um, and the world I experience is very different. We see this playing out all over the world imperfectly, but we see it playing out. Um, the, the amazing thing is that we've seen the numbers in, in extreme poverty go down even while the population of the earth has gone up. You might say it's easy to kind of, it might be easier to have extreme poverty eradicated or at least reduced if population remained the same, but we've actually been able to feed, clothe, and, and, and care for more people around the globe successfully even as populations have dramatically increased. You can see on that chart that the population increased while the numbers in extreme poverty keep going down. And in fact, in the last decade alone, we see more than a billion people, fewer people in extreme poverty than we did the decade before. Life expectancy. Life expectancy across the world in every region has gone up over, over the last 200 years. There's still in, uh, discrepancies in that. The difference between Africa and Europe is about 20 years, but across the globe, every area of the world is seeing improvement in life expectancy. Child, moral, more, more, child mortality rates, children dying before they're five years old, it's down all over the world. And again, there still needs to be addressed, eat beans and rice for lunch. We, I mean, we, we can still meet some of these needs, there's still room to do it, but the trends, the, the, the movement is, is positive. I think we need to recognize this. Literacy around the globe. As recently as 1960, the majority of people on earth were illiterate, did not read or write. Today, that's less than 15%. That's good news. We're not there, but poverty and some of these things are, 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 kind of are, are, are just uh, changing radically under our watch. And some of you may say, well, Professor Sovi, these are just graphs. I can't believe that you're getting excited about graphs. I never, ever get excited about a graph, but I get, get darn excited about the people that are represented by the graph. That these graphs represent real people around the world that need to know Jesus, need, uh, need to encounter the, a, a saving relationship with him, and, and we pray, and, and, and we're uh, College of Business and Technology, we're members of our local churches. We are praying, supporting, encouraging God's work throughout the world through churches and parachurch organizations um, and, uh, and everything. But I, 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 I see something bigger and another opportunity. And here's, here's kind of the tie into why your work matters. Uh, economist Deidre McCloskey calls this entire thing that I'm speaking about the great enrichment that something has happened where people become richer over the, next, uh, over the last uh, few years. Um, this chart may actually seem kind of odd amongst all the rest. It's like the cost of air travel. That seems not quite as momentous uh, in comparison to world hunger. Uh, but I think it's illustrative. And uh, as serious as the previous charts were, here's the amazing thing today. You can fly from Minneapolis to Tokyo partly because someone figured out how to build an airplane. Work of engineers matter and make a difference in people's lives. But you can fly from Minneapolis to Tokyo on an airplane um, in part because someone at a bank figured out how to finance both Boeing, who created the airplane, and Delta Airlines that flies it. You can fly from Minneapolis to Tokyo because someone at an insurance company underwrote the risk, and actually that's part of why the, the dollars go down. And so I can sort of picture someone working at an insurance company, and they're sitting in their little cubicle trying to figure out, do I, does the work that I do matter? And, and they, they might say to themselves, I only, I only work in an insurance company. Only is a dangerous word to say around me because I correct students all the time. 
only qualifies things in ways that I don't like. You're not only an insurance agent. I think about what would happen if that, if, if that person at the insurance company sitting in their, in their cubicle realized that their insurance of risk allows other people to live their dreams and accomplish uh, kind of important uh, activities and, and, and around the world in which lives are transformed and changed in, uh, for, for good ways. Um, everyday jobs that people do make an impact on people's lives. We have farmers who have invented new patterns of crop rotation which have fed uh, billions of people more effectively than we used to. Uh, we have people in business that have, that have invented or at least worked on just-in-time inventory methods that have helped significantly reduce poverty around the world. You have a computer or you have a smartphone, you have a tablet kind of in your hand uh, on social media even at this moment in part because someone had an idea that maybe silicon, we could use silicon to, uh, to, 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 to develop a computer and processing capacities but you also have that in your hands because someone figured out how to finance it with junk bonds in the early part of the internet. People in every walk of life have made impacts. Now, um, Deidre, McCl oh, sorry. Deidre McCloskey gave sort of this model of like what grows income in, in countries, what, what, what grows income. She suggests that if you want to, uh, and I would say this, if you want to save the world, if you want to have an impact on the world, and you want to have meaning and, and, and kind of purpose in your life, I think we have to understand what caused the growth. Because prior to 1800, the world was pretty static in terms of economic, financial, material outcomes. And then something changed. I better understand what changed. McCloskey suggests that, well, we, we can have people that every year save some money and put it aside and maybe build something, build a business, invest that. And they may invest in infrastructure, roads, bridges, you'll see hear this talked about, buildings and such. And each investment in roads and bridges and infrastructure and, and, and such and, and, and equipment helps provide the next generation with capacities to improve their lives. But that's part of the story and it's probably not the primary reason why the world's gone better. If you were to take along with our facilities team at North Central, you'd realize that buildings break down and wear out. When we build infrastructure, the more infrastructure you build, you have to maintain it over time. And in maintaining it is expensive. And from an economic perspective, as we build buildings, build roads, build uh, infrastructure, over time, it has to, uh, the, the cost of maintaining it actually tends to uh, work against the benefits of, of the infrastructure. Growth that we've experienced on the magnitude that we've experienced over the last 200 years probably cannot be explained by infrastructure alone or even primarily. McCloskey suggested it's, it's, it's innovation. And innovation is a word that you, you will hear and will continue to hear coming out of the College of Business and Technology. The idea that ideas have changed the world. Here's the thing. If I build a road, I have to maintain it. If I have an idea, the idea never wears out. And my idea spawns your idea, which spawns another idea, and we get this exponential growth around the world. Innovation. And so what McCloskey suggests is that over the last 200 years, we've seen people ascribe dignity to people that, that, that are innovative, people who have new ideas, new companies, new ways of doing things that we've actually said, hey, we recognize that there's dignity in that, we value your innovation. We've also given innovators a more, uh, a, a, a more, uh, more than we have in the past, in, 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 in historical times, liberty to actually have the freedom to follow their dreams and, 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 and enact their, their, their innovative ideas. Um, innovative ideas is what changed the world. 
And McCloskey describes it really this way. She says that uh, in the, in, 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 since 1800, we've had a big change in, in opinions about markets and innovation. And, and she says that, that she makes a claim that we grew this much economically and had all of this well-being primarily because our conversation changed. We had a new conversation. We get provided dignity for those who do good things. Why don't you take a look at this quote or this video for me? That's an amazing quote, is that? And I think that, that, quote, that, 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 that message from Dr. Martin Luther King inspires me and it really sums up uh, the power of kind of what I'm trying to com- convey here. And it, 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 it sums up what we started with in Ephesians 2.10, you're God's masterpiece. God has uniquely created each one of us, he's created you to good works, which he's prepared in advance for you to do. No matter what you and I do, we can worship and glorify God through it. The Industrial Revolution was really built by one idea, and actually, why don't you stand up with me as we, we close here? Because I truly believe that every single one of you is, is uniquely called, uniquely gifted by God. And you can insert in this quote from Dr. King, instead of sweet sweeper, whatever profession, whatever calling that you have, uh, for me, at times I'm a dad, and God calls me to be the best dad and, sweet, and be a dad so much that all of the hosts of heaven would say, there lived a dad and he, he served his role as a dad well. God calls me to be a husband, and he calls me to do that well so that all the hosts of heaven would say, and God calls me to be a professor, and he calls me to do that so well that all the hosts of heaven would, would, would uh, see that and say and that's, that there lived a professor who, sw- who did his job well. That's true for you. But here's the interesting thing, and I'll wrap this up. Um, with the Industrial Revolution, there was this unique thing that happened, particularly in the United States, that as people did better, they found that they would, what they would try to do was on the weekend, when I'm away from my job, I would spend a couple of hours trying to figure out how do I do my daily job better? How can I improve what I do? That it's worthwhile setting aside time to do and think, how do I make what I do better? that I'm not satisfied with where things are currently. And, and truthfully, if you ask that question, am I compensated for those couple of hours, I think you're missing the point. It's worthwhile and it's God-honoring to figure out how do I do this job better. And so if you wanna find value and worth in your daily job, the vocation, the occupations that God's called you to, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a therapist, whether you're a journalist or pastor, engineer or actuary, accountant, marketer, whether you're an entrepreneur or you end up working for somebody else as an employee, whether it's again at a nonprofit or a for-profit, a government organization, a church or faith-based organization, spend a couple of hours for the rest of your life every single week trying to figure out how do I do my job better. And if you do that, if you do that, 
what you'll find is that the hosts of heaven will be cheering you on and championing you and saying, here lived in, insert your vocation, a street sweeper who swept his job well. And God's gonna be honored in it. It's worship to him and it impacts the world in ways that we can't even imagine and comprehend. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your people, designed by you, bearing your image, serving people throughout this world that also bear your image. I pray that you would continue this progress around the globe, they would be infused with your gospel, that the salvation message of Jesus Christ would be heard throughout this globe, that people in terms of their physical well-being would improve and continue to improve, but their spiritual well-being around the globe, that you would bring a revival. We thank you that you give us the great privilege of partnering with you in this work that you're doing in our world. We thank you that you're glorified in it. We give you today and we give you the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you as you serve him.